Well, welcome to Irreligiosophy. We are here on our guest podcast. Right now we have Peter Walker and Adele Sackler online with us. I've got Charlie sitting next to me, although that's kind of pointless since he's not very useful anyway. You're a little hostile this week. Like, uh, only with is there you. something, some issues you want to uh, work out? You made me paint your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that is true. All right, well, we got Adele and Peter. How about you guys introduce yourself so we don't uh, mess well, that well, up? Well, why don't we start with Peter first? That way they're not talking over each other. Nice, that, nice mediating here. Well, Adele was the one who set this up for me, so I'd like her to start. I'm okay with that. How about you, Adele? Well, currently I live in Richmond, Virginia with my wife, Katrina. We were married in October in California uh, before Prop 8 was overturned or passed. And I am currently in... Uh, long-term treatment for chronic Lyme disease, so I'm not able to work right now. Uh, my saving grace is my blog, existentialpunk.com, where I rant and uh, write and kind of just journal things I'm going through with Lyme disease, with spirituality, uh, pop culture, uh, politics, and um, gay and lesbian issues. So, And then I started another blog, uh, called Queer Mergent. It's queermergent.wordpress.com, and it's a safe house for uh, gay, lesbians, transgender, and bi folks who are coming out of um, a Christian background in a postmodern context who want to have a safe place to dialogue, and then those who are um, straight allies, if they want to have more understanding and they're supportive of us, it's not to bash us. So um, that's kind of that. I grew up. Uh, is Presbyterian. My mom was Presbyterian. My dad was Jewish, non-practicing. And uh, my Jewish grandparents put me in Catholic schools when I was in fifth grade. And I went through Catholic school all the way through college. And in college, I had what you would call a fundamentalist born-again Christian experience. And, um, you know, the altar call, you know, laying on of hands, say the sinner's prayer, receive Jesus into my heart. And I did it mostly out of fear of going to hell. So my view of God was this taskmaster sitting up in heaven, looking down at me disapprovingly, and I had to try to please him. So I walked many years with that, and then I finally had a, an awakening and uh, read some books and saw that uh, Christianity is not as certain as the fundamentalist Christians make it out to be and that um, I don't have all the answers and that I'm learning to live more in the ambiguity and questions rather than having all the answers. So that's kind of where I am. I have not found a church that I really connect with and like. I have a lot of online community with friends through Twitter and blogging and Facebook, but um, my fa I have a lot of questions still and a lot of doubts. Um, I still claim to follow Jesus Christ, but... Um, but I don't have all the answers, and I, you know, tonight's part of having conversations like this helped me still kind of work through where I'm going, and so I think great things will come out of tonight, and thank you. Yeah, well, we're really looking forward to it, and in fact, I, I really respect the, uh, the fact that you're stating that there are still questions out there, and that all the answers that aren't found, it's those who always tell me that they know for a fact the answers that I really start kind of going, uh, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think you can get, I mean, and, and I, oh, and I've also struggled with being gay on my life, and I came out, I went through ex-gay ministries trying to pray away the gay, 
you know, and reparative therapy. (laughs) I've never quite heard of that, but all right. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if you remember Sarah Palin in the election cycle, they had a program at her church about pray away the gay. Yeah, but it's this whole whole ministry thing that you go through, and it never worked. And I finally came to, and a half years ago, peace with myself and who I was, and peace with how I understand my understanding of God. And I came out to my friends, and it's been the best thing I've ever done. I'm the happiest I've ever been, and Peter's been a really great supportive friend to me, and um, we've had lots of conversations, and and so... um, That was just two and a half years ago that that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, so this is actually very recent. Yeah, yeah, and so Katrina and I just celebrated two years together in December, so... Well, congratulations. congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. There's a lot of stuff in there to talk about, but let's get 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 Peter's introduction. Okay. Um, Well, I I was born and raised in a um, pretty conservative Christian. Am I coming through okay? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're coming good. Pretty conservative Christian household, um, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God. I also got bumped around to a lot of little house churches and small groups and uh, little things that started to coalesce uh, that my parents were a part of. And then those would kind of fall apart. And so ultimately we gravitated as a family to a local mega church, And that's kind of where I developed my faith. And I, it was really in my, I think during my college career that some of my worldview started to crumble a little bit. But I still kept my Republican column in the school newspaper. So I was pretty, uh, pretty adamant not to let go of my conservative worldview <clears throat> until really only about five years ago. I think that my view of God has always been very safe, uh, very compassionate in spite of the fundamentalism of the, the culture that I grew up in. I just never really had anything very bad happen to me. It's really been through watching friends and loved ones like Adele, uh, my wife, who uh, has experienced some pretty terrible things in a church context, um, that started to, to crumble my view that, that all was well. And so I think a lot of the things that I'm thinking about and writing about and talking about uh, on my blog, EmergingChristian.com, are, are very similar to the kinds of conversations Adele is having. There is ambiguity and there is a lot of mystery out there. The, the black and white answers, the, the easy answers that a lot of us got growing up, uh, they don't work in the real world. Uh, for me, I think most of my relationships are with non-Christians, and there was a point where I realized that I couldn't keep holding the sort of hellfire and brimstone God view that I had, uh, even though I was never really angry, um, I felt that I had to had to embrace that that view of of punishment and atonement. Just in having a relationship with non-Christians and in in watching the wounding and the healing process of loved ones, I, I've realized that that my Christianity needed to evolve, and I'm very intentional about using the word evolve because of all of the connotations it brings um, and sort of flies in the face of the immediacy of conservative evangelical theology um, and ecclesiology, the way that we approach doing church and uh, ministry with one another. How, how long ago did you two meet, and how did you meet? <clears throat> we met at George Fox Seminary, actually. The first class, Adele, was that the first class you were in? Yeah, I think so. Was it with um, Brian McLaren? Yeah. Um, so we were we were in this class um, with Brian McLaren, and if you're not familiar with him, he he's sort of one of the the instigators of uh, what's called the Emergent Conversation, um, and you can go to emergentvillage.com to to learn a little bit more about that. 
Um, and really, it is. It is a deconstruction of modernist thinking about Christianity and a, and a reapproach of uh, faith conversation outside of that context of, of rationalism. Um, so we were both in that class together, and that was about three and a half years ago. And I think Adele and I were just drawn to each other on the online portion of the class. There was an online component every week. Um, both of us were kind of speaking from the same worldview, which was a little bit disillusioned and also very, very comfortable with, like we've already said, ambiguity, with questions, with mystery, and uh, not needing God to be contained in the box that evangelicalism has put God into. Now you mentioned emergent, and I'm going to need to have that defined, because Adele, you have a, a, a blog called Queer Emergent, and Peter, your blog's Emergent Christian, and then this was a discussion about emergent Christianity. I'm not quite sure what that means. Sure. Adele, you want to start with it, and I'll take it from there? Sure. Okay. Well, my understanding is it's kind of like a conversation of Christians who have become disillusioned in church, like Peter said, from a modernistic, rationalistic view of Christianity, and it's looking, it's deconstructing, it's having paradigm shift in how we interpret scripture, theology, it's um, looking at it in a postmodern context. And so, and it, and it's not just the easy answers anymore, black and white. There is that ambiguity. There's, um, it's looking more um, beyond the two issues of homosexuality and abortion. It's looking at poverty. It's looking at the environment, taking care of the earth, and and those kinds of things. Do I have that right, Peter? What you think? Yeah. And let me read real quick, uh, just a, a short sentence from their website. Emergent Village is a growing gen. Generative friendship. Can you edit that out? Traditional <laughs> Christians seeking to love our world in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the word missional uh, shouldn't be confused with missionary because that has a lot of colonial uh, connotations to it. But missional Christianity is another sort of buzzword that, that's going around the blogosphere. Um, but it's, it's living faith in an active way beyond just talking about uh, what you believe. And, and that's a big part of, I think, the critique of modernist Christianity is that it's a set of bullet points, basically, these theological or intellectual assertions about what God is versus conversations about a personality and a character and, and that transforming action into, into a lifestyle. Um, so emergent, you're going to find very liberal Christians who associate themselves with emergent and very conservative, probably not too conservative, but there are still conservative Christians who recognize that the worldview that Christianity has sort of created uh, separate from the culture at large, this subcultural ghetto uh, of evangelicalism, um, there's something wrong with that. It's, it's separated itself to a point of becoming ingrown uh, and even inbred. And so whether you're very conservative or very liberal, emergent is about relationally working out some of the questions and problems that are existing in, in Christianity today. Right, and I uh, think it's also about authenticity and about Christianity has become a, about it's become like a transactional thing. I accept Jesus as my savior so therefore I get into heaven and I worry about the afterlife versus living here the kingdom of God on earth how we treat people you know how we live our lives and that that is what they're exploring as well. All right. How do you deal with um, the verses that keep cropping up in the Bible, say, that the evangelicals keep quoting, the, the Phelps group, the other evangelicals, that 
that uh, are anti-homosexuality in, in Leviticus, in Romans, in Corinthians? How do you deal with those verses? Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a great question because I mean, my parents they were I was up there visiting a while ago and they were complaining uh, their LDS and they were complaining that the LDS Church in and of itself was getting hammered because of Prop Eight and they couldn't understand why and I had to explain to them that the LDS Church was funding quite a bit of that and even had their name on yeah. these uh, commercials. So I mean, how do you deal with this type of situation well with some people like that or like some people who come to queer emergent and lambast with the bible scriptures you know in Elm all i i say to them but you kind of go in a circular argument but what i say to people who are open to listening is that the bible was written by men even though they heard you know godly men god-fearing men they were still men they were human and I think that a lot of those scriptures need to be taken in their historical and cultural context for that time. We don't continue separating out wearing one kind of clothing. We wear, you know, blends. We eat shrimp. And then I think in the New Testament, Paul was speaking to temple prostitution that was rampant in that culture then. And not about loving gay relationships. And I think that, I was just talking about this with Katrina earlier, I, I think that, like, my relationship with her is constantly evolving, we're growing, we're changing, we learn more about each other every day. And I think God is like that too, I don't think God is stagnant, and I don't think that the Bible is a roadmap for all time, I think it's about a relationship with these people, I think there's things we can learn from it, I'm not, I don't believe everything literally happened in the Bible, I think there are truths that we can glean from it, but it's a story. In a, in a bigger context. So I'm going to agree, have to agree to disagree with people who don't agree with me and tell me I'm reprobate, I'm going to hell, I'm on a slippery slope. Well, I, Adele, a, I think you're actually safe because reading through those uh, passages, God, it seems God has a problem with homosexual men, but he never mentions <laughs> lesbians. <laughs> I think you found a loophole. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> well, I mean... Yeah. I, you, you bring up a very curious point. Does that mean uh, that the emergent type uh, Christians do not believe in the literal translation of the Bible? I would say some, some, some still do. I mean, you're still getting into some groups that are, but I would say a lot of them don't. Wouldn't you, Peter? Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a huge blend within, I mean, just like the, the extremes of liberal and conservative, there's a lot of in between, and there's a lot of people who, and I, and I think I would put myself in this category, there are questions that I simply don't have answers for, and the Bible certainly uh, doesn't have answers for, and that's okay. Uh, the idea that the Bible is supposed to be laid out like some kind of encyclopedia for healthy living is so, uh, you know, 20th century uh, self-improvement garbage. Like Adele said, the Bible is a chronicle of interactions with God and about God um, written by human beings. I believe they were spiritually inspired, but that doesn't mean I think that they have no errors or no human slant on those those viewpoints. If I could interject real quick, the way that I approach the, the situation of homosexuality is I have friends like Adele who are out, uh, some of them Christian, some of them vehemently atheist, and then I, I, I have a good friend who is part of what's called the ex-gay movement, which I think Adele mentioned earlier, who see homosexuality as a sin, and they recognize their own homosexual desires but feel spiritual conviction about them. And, and for me, that's not an issue that I have any right or place 
to be judging on because I don't deal with that. I think Brad Pitt's an attractive man, but if you're going to get into somebody making a judgment call about a stance on homosexuality, that I have no business there. That's not my cross to carry or it's not my uh, worldview to walk through. So I ask for grace and um, forgiveness from both Adele and, and from this other friend because I need to love them both and allow them to work out their their existential experiences on their own. And, and I think that's the heart of my where my Christianity is going is that in a postmodern uh, setting, everybody has their own experience. And I have a really hard time judging somebody else's experience as right or wrong, especially if it's not hurting other people. I believe God is big enough to work out personal salvation and personal faith at that personal level. All right. Well, Adele, you actually said something that I, I found very interesting. You said that, uh, like you and your wife, uh, your relationship is evolving, and you said the same thing about God, and uh, I've always found that very curious, uh, especially considering mainstream Christianity, is their one big hang-up is that God never changes, that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, by that statement, uh, do you believe that God's relationship with us shifts around? Does God shift? I, I believe so. You know, heck, maybe I'm wrong, but I just believe that there are verses just people take out of context in the Bible. I believe that he is a good God. You know, I don't understand why there's evil in the world. I don't understand, I was listening to your podcast earlier about, um, I forget which one I was listening to, but time, you know, evil in the world, and I just, I don't know why. I, I, I have a simplistic answer. I can say, oh, well, we're human and we're fallible, but that doesn't really give an answer. But I do believe God changes, and I don't, I believe he can change his mind. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just my experience. Now, I've been following the Proposition 8 um, almost from the beginning. I was very, very disappointed uh, in California that they upheld it. I still can't believe that they did uh, that. Well, I think there are a couple different Californias. You have your rural California, you got your cosmopolitan California. <laughs> um, and I think um, uh, one of the, when you look at the breakdowns, the people who came out in force for Obama unfortunately also voted for Proposition 8. And that, that was disappointing. But now I think that they've been emboldened by it. And they're trying to pass legislation that will invalidate the uh, marriages that were uh, yes. uh, that, that happened under you know before Proposition Eight went on, and and that's actually those that's motivated by the same religious people who did it in the in the first place. Um, I think the Mormon Church is probably backing off on that now because they've gotten so much backlash on it. But the same people who did Proposition Eight are, are trying to um, I, I don't know. It, it just seems mean spirited to me that to, to it, it is. I mean, it's downright they're forcing their religious beliefs on other people. People. I, I, I don't like that. It's the like least. they can't stand anyone anywhere uh, to have any type of relationship that's not sanctioned personally by them. Exactly. And then they, they want to bitch at us because, oh, that we're living in sin. We're not married, you know? Well, then we get married and right. it, was civil, <laughs> it was a civil marriage. You know, we didn't get married in a church. Yeah, right, and, clearly. So, <laughs> I don't uh, understand. You uh, know, and the thing is, though, I have to say, when I in 2000, when they the first one against gay marriage, it passed by like 22 points. This time, it only passed like by four and a half points. So in eight years, we have come a long way. Yeah, but, I but think it's lied. a the other side lied. The pro prop eight people lied. They said that teachers were going to be forced to teach about homosexuality in school, 
and that pastors could get in trouble for preaching from the pulpit that homosexuality was a sin, and that was all wrong. They lied to the people. Right. I saw um, part of Glenn Beck where he said that if you pass, if you don't pass Proposition Eight, it'll become a hate crime to preach against homosexuality from the pulpit. I really don't like that guy. He, he's pretty much a, a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's it's a losing battle. Eventually, I think in, in 50 years, people won't even be talking about it. It's not going to be a, a topic anymore. It's just going to be one of those cultural things that's passed, and if you bring it up, you'll, you'll, Much you'll like be... Much like segregation. Right, you'll yeah. be considered a, um, a sexist, a homosexist? Homo I don't know what the, yeah, like <laughs> what the term. term is. Homophobic, yeah. I guess, what it, it would be. Um, but yeah, yeah, it kills me. Let her talk. But go ahead. Oh, Katrina was just reading about, um, in Florida, this appellate court judges are upholding this law to not allow gays to adopt because their reason for it was going back to Anita Bryant, you know, from the 70s, which she wrote in, was that um, gay parents of children will cause their children to become gay. Oh, jeez. Right, which is pretty much um, not panned out in the studies. I know. Um, well, why didn't I turn out heterosexual? They're there, it's apparently in their mind, it's some sort of massive conspiracy that gay people cannot replace themselves naturally, so they have to recruit. And it's a big gay agenda to go out there and like a missionary efforts, as if churches don't do this themselves. Exactly. They go out there and they have to recruit replacements. As Harvey Milk says, I'm here to recruit you. <laughs> right. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, all right, well, how about a question for you, Peter? Um, I heard... Uh, you really emphasized uh, evolution when you were talking about your introduction, and uh, so I'm very curious. Uh, how do you guys look uh, with the emergent type Christianity, where science is concerned, where where evolution is concerned, and where global warming? Because I believe Adele said that uh, emergent uh, Christians are more interested in taking care of the planet. Do you guys find conflictions with those types of uh, of interests and conversations? concerning the Bible, or is this something that emergent Christians have actually come to terms with? I, I think for the most part, we have, and there, I think there's always going to be very staunch uh, literalists who see books like Genesis as the equivalent of a biology textbook. One of the things that I think is really sad about the modern church is its lack of historical context and its understanding of the development of scriptures in the first place. I don't know if I should say they or we because I still have one foot in that world. We say that we hold scripture to such a high standard and, and such a high light, and yet we treat it with huge disrespect for how it was historically developed. You know, ancient Judaism revolved around an oral tradition where stories, these, these archetypes and these meta-narratives of origins, you know, happened around a campfire. There was never an intention, and, and I think that Jewish scholars would, would affirm this, that a book like Genesis was meant to be taken as a literal over, you know, physical evidence that, that can be observed. Jonah's another one that, you know, the story of being swallowed by the, the whale. Even the style is written allegorically. It, these are not specific people telling specific stories that, that are meant to be taken literally. And, and they don't need to be taken literally to still carry a truth about who we are and where we've come from. So when I read a, a book like Genesis, I think that some, you know, some of the characters there probably lived at some time or another. But these stories developed to, to tell about who we are and what our relationship is to God. And you know, the, the Adam and Eve story has been so warped and manipulated to say 
certain things about male and female roles, about how life began on the the, work, the world, and really it's it's about people's relationship with God and people's limitations to understand God and selfishness and family. Could the same sort of thinking be put towards Christ? I mean, you say that a, a lot of the early Genesis books and such uh, deal with uh, allegories and uh, parables, I guess. So, I mean, could the same thing be said about Christ and the miracles he performed? Could those have just been something somebody was trying to teach as they went along? There's a lot of theologians who would say yes. Um, Marcus Borg, uh, the Jesus Seminar, um, Bishop Spong, these are a lot of theologians who say yes, most of what we have that is supernatural out of the Gospels is probably interjected to to emphasize the Godhood of Christ. But really, you know, Christ was a beautiful human being who attained this perfection through kindness and love and, and sort of became Christ rather than was born as Christ. I don't think that, and I'm not a historian, but from what I know, I don't think that the, the scriptures of the Gospels were written in the same style as Genesis. The Gospels were written as, as first or second-hand accounts, um, people that actually saw these events unfold. doesn't mean that people can't lie. For my own faith, I choose to believe that Jesus is who is reflected through Scripture. And, and you know, uh, the, the problem there is then that you're, you're picking and choosing what you want to believe to fit your worldview, and I recognize that. Um, I don't need all of the, the supernatural elements of the Gospels. I don't need those to be true to sustain my faith in who Jesus is, but I also don't find a huge personal conflict with believing them. Would it harm either of your faiths uh, if Jesus was mythical and didn't actually live um, and some of these people in the say that um, Bob Price in the Jesus seminar is right where uh, Jesus didn't exist at all and what it is is it's a, um, a combination of prior pagan myths of the um, resurrecting and dying Savior God would it harm or destroy either of your faith if that were true Jesus never lived and it was simply mythology I was just having this conversation with a pastor not too long ago who said if, if they found um, the bones of Jesus in a grave, he'd be out of there. He'd grab his golf clubs and he'd be down in Southern California the next day. <clears throat> That's amazing to me that somebody could give their entire life to ministry for the love or belief in this God. And all it takes is one little piece of that picture. And maybe it's not a little piece, maybe it's a big piece, but one piece of that uh, gets taken out and it all crumbles. And I think that's a, a huge problem with the modern construction of Christianity is that it's based on these propositional truths versus relational truths. And Adele and I were just talking about this too. If a piece about Jesus could be disproved to me, if, if the physical bodily resurrection of Christ didn't happen, it would affect, <laughs> it would impact me, but I wouldn't reject Christianity or, or at least reject my relationship with God because I think that I've had a personal experience that, that transcends that. So just because I find out some piece of, um, of who I thought I knew wasn't true, well, that just encourages me to seek deeper to try to understand then who who it is or who it was that I was interacting with on a spiritual level. And, and I feel like my spiritual life is that tangible. I think it's pretty hard to argue that Jesus of Nazareth didn't actually live on the earth. Um, so I don't, I'm not all that interested in an argument that says Jesus didn't actually live. I think that's pretty hard to assert, although it's anything's possible. But I, I do understand people who say, I, I don't believe in the virgin birth, which I hold in ambiguity because I think that there's a lot of evidence, even scripturally, that it didn't necessarily happen that way, or the bodily resurrection. How about you, Adele? 
I've thought about this. I don't think it would. I mean, I think I would keep going because, you know, the Jesus I read about in, in the Gospels is, I fail all the time miserably, more than I get it right, but I try to emulate him because I think he's such an example. If I found out, like Peter said, they found his bones, you know, and that he didn't die and rise again, I, I, I don't think that would uh, be a, a deal breaker for me. But I don't know any more to say beyond that. I mean, yeah, Jesus was somebody that even I, whether prophet, uh, God, whatever he may be, the teachings he taught were very valid. Love each other, you know, help each other out. Easy now. You gotta, yeah. you gotta still cherry pick out of the New Testament because in parts of it, Jesus says that he he comes not to unite families; he comes to divide, to divide them, them, and he comes yeah. not to um, bring peace, but a sword. Uh, yeah. So there, there are some parts of the New Testament even that are questionable ethically. Uh, yeah. Hell, I think Paul t tells a slave to go back to uh, his master instead of freeing him, um, yeah. and here's a perfect opportunity to disavow slavery, um, yeah. and they don't. Yeah, it's, you know, I do, I, I question, um, I question things, like, you know, there's things that just don't make sense to me in the Bible, and I, to be honest, I've been a Christian for 20 years, I've never read the Bible through in its entirety, um, <laughs> an anomaly. I, 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 I was just telling Katrina tonight, I said, I get bored reading the Bible, I, it bores me, and, yeah. I, you know, I, just... I, I would, I would have thought that an omnipotent being could have written a more uh, absorbing plot. <laughs> but you see, you have these... All right. He's so concerned with who begat who. Um, yeah. There's lots of chapters in there that are just pure begatting, yeah. um, and that is excruciating to read. Excuse me, I need to know who begat Abel. <laughs> that is very important to my salvation. Eve. Eve begat Abel. Eve begat Abel. Well, now you've just solved my there mystery. You go. Thank you. Done. <laughs> 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 well, that's what we're here for. Uh, so along along those same lines, um, if if Jesus, I, I guess a question to you as emergent Christians also, do you believe in the supernatural occurrences in the New Testament? Do you believe Jesus, in other words, turned water into wine? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe in the um, resurrection? Literally occurred. Did, did he actually walk on water? I believe in that they, they could have happened. I, I believe he resurrected, but... I hold those those loosely because you know I because I don't know I wasn't there like Peter said were these people you know were they on peyote or something you know <laughs> I, I don't know because I wasn't there but I do believe in the supernatural I mean I believe that's that's part of mystery to me the mystery of God and I, I I'm open and believe in those things I, I believe you know there like Peter said the virgin birth maybe she didn't have a virgin conception I, I don't know. Could it have happened? Sure. I, I, I just, I do, I do believe supernatural things can happen, and I, I think we only use 10% of our brain capacity. So to try to figure God out and, and understand everything, I, I, I just can't. I'm, I'm, I'm not stupid, but, you know, that, that's where I'm kind of, that's where the ambiguity of life and the mystery and the questions, I'm okay with that. You both had experiences where you had to kind of back off of, of your prior beliefs because it went through. And my question, I guess, with regards to that is, 
why not go all the way and throw Christianity out as well? You know, why? Yeah, why stop short of atheism yeah. rather than? What was the step that actually made you guys turn towards Christianity again and turns towards your current belief system? Why not throw the baby out with the bathwater? I guess is my question. For me, I never lost my relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it sounds very. I think it sounds very elitist to say that, or, or maybe very presumptuous to suggest that I have a personal experience with God. Everybody has a personal experience with God. Um, everybody hears something from the divine. And one of the most frustrating things of, of being a part of the Pentecostal church is that everybody is manifesting these so-called supernatural things, speaking in tongues, you know, babbling in public, having premonitions about the future or about the direct word of God. I'm like Adele. I believe that these things are possible, and I, I believe that the things in Scripture could have happened, and I don't really have a reason to question some of them. Um, some of them I do. But uh, I've never seen those supernatural things in genuine, authentic action. I've only seen a lot of BS that people got themselves emotionally hyped up about. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's only destructive when it's imposed as a requirement for knowing or understanding who God is. So I used to work with youth a lot, and they all faked speaking in tongues because they knew that their parents required that to be confident in their, in their salvation. And I think that's really, really sad. How about you, Adele? Why, why I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? Yeah. Um, why do you like that baby so much? I, I don't really like... I try not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think that, you know, I, there's nuggets of truth in anything, you know? I don't mean anything, but I I lost my father when I, three weeks before I turned 17. He died of cancer. Three months later, almost to the day, his uh, father and mother and grandmother, my great-grandmother, were killed in a fire in their home. Jeez. I lost four family members in three months, and I was in this Catholic high school, and I totally said, how? I, I, I rejected God. I said, there can't be a God. Who God would allow this to me? I wanted nothing to do with God for like a year, year and a half, and then started coming around, wanting to know. I was in, you know, I had to take religion classes in high school, and the, the love that my um, fellow students and the faculty showed me and my school, the support they showed me, started getting me interested in this God again. So then I started knowing this God, and then I come three years later and have this charismatic born-again experience. Then all these years later, I, I start deconstructing these certainties that I had grown and learned. And it wasn't that I wanted to throw it all out. I just had a paradigm shift in my thinking. And I was still, I don't mean it something. It's not that I'm like getting something out of it. I don't know. I just have this, this um, I, I can't explain it, but I had this drawing, like God drawing me. I don't know how to explain it other than that. And I, I love God. And yes, I screw up and don't always treat people nice. I get mad when I drive. But, um, <laughs> but something compels me. I don't know how to explain that. But that's why. I guess there's something I the sense of of a supernatural presence and and that's what I can't escape is no matter how much I deconstruct no matter how much I peel away I can't get away from the awareness of something that seems an awful lot like God and I can't get away from what I feel compelled by the, the personality of Jesus Christ so even though a lot of my ideas about God have have changed or or gone out the window that presence there which a lot of people could probably characterized as emotional hype or whatever it's still there uh, i'm curious uh, and you may have talked about this already on your on your blog guys but what led you from mormonism to atheism versus agnosticism because i could almost call myself a christian agnostic except i can't quite go that far 
I, I was agnostic for a while, actually. Um, uh, philosophy major really uh, cut the legs out of religion entirely for me, and I probably was agnostic for a couple of years before I really um, gave it up. And what it, what struck me in the end was agnostics are essentially atheists. They just call themselves something different. You don't believe in God. You just want a philosophical defense against it. Uh, and you don't need it because the definition of atheist for me is someone who lacks a belief in God. And that I'm not making a positive assertion that God doesn't exist. If he does, uh, so be it. Hopefully he is all benevolent and all understanding. And uh, we can uh, have a debate on why he chose not to reveal himself to me or why he took such pains to hide himself from me. Um, I don't think there's any, now, I don't think there's any philosophical benefit to being agnostic over an atheist. As for me, I mean, uh, I pretty much, it took me about 10 years to uh, finally seek out all the information on the LDS Church and make a decision that they were absolutely wrong. And after that, it was about three months where I was just kind of up in limbo there going, well, God, are you up there? And pretty much what tossed, uh, well, tossed the baby out with the water, seeing how we love that analogy this podcast, um, <laughs> what... Uh, what made that go out with the water was uh, my study of Egyptology. I have a great love of Egyptology, and here I was seeing correlations between Egyptology and the Egyptian belief systems thousands of years before Christianity even came about. And from there, my mind started shifting around these ideas and these facts that have already been discovered, and I started to realize, well, Christianity actually took a lot of these uh, Egyptian-type belief systems and incorporated it into their own system, so I found it very difficult to believe in any sort of religious system anywhere when there could be borrowing from other nations to incorporate it into their own belief system. And that's, that's basically what sent me over the edge in such a short period of time. It was just from deciding, okay, Mormonism is completely wrong, to three months later in just my uh, studies in Egyptology discovering all of these coincidences and finally going, you know what, I cannot in any way say that any particular re religion is correct because every time I search into the history of it, I find places where they've borrowed from another nation. And that's basically where I sit. That's like, it reminds me of the um, story where um, Jacob wrestles with God in the Old Testament, because that's found in other, other um, cultures too, you know, and that's, I, I question those kinds of things too, and, and I also am not the kind of Christian who um, says that Jesus is the only way, I think that scripture possibly is taken out of context, I'm not a theologian, so I, I, I don't know, but, but I'm, I'm more of a, um, in, inclusivist, I guess, maybe, because um, I think God, for my, my belief, I believe God, Jesus, can meet anybody in a any country, any faith, whatever, it doesn't, you don't have to come to know God through the vein of Christianity, I, I don't believe that anymore, so could I be wrong again, sure, I could be wrong, I, I, I just, um, could I be chasing after something that God doesn't exist? Yeah, I could be. I, you know, maybe I haven't hit a wall like where where you guys have come. Maybe there's in my journey. I'm I'm still seeking. I, I I don't know. I hope that um I remain in my faith, but I I have a lot of doubts too, and I get I get really pissed off at um God's children and the way they treat 
treat other people. Yeah. And it really turns me off, so... Now, that's a good question. You mentioned the problem of evil being one of your doubts. What are some of your other ones? What are, what are some of the things that you guys are struggling with? Yeah, now, Peter, you even mentioned that you haven't had anything really bad happen to you, but you've watched it happen to your wife and to Adele and to others, and this has made you question some things. What are the things that you guys question where religion is concerned? Hmm, good question. Adele, um, I don't mean to jump in over you here, so... No, you go, because I'm, th I'm thinking. It takes me a while to process the Lyme disease, so that's You guys fine. love how polite we are here. Well, that, that's quite all right. <laughs> More polite than Charlie are not are to one another, so... I don't know if there are a lot of specifics. Um, this sounds bad. The problem of evil doesn't really bother me, and, and like I said, that may be because I've had pretty smooth sailing in my life. I, I really I believe in in free will and I believe in a God that is not overly controlling of creation, which is why I believe uh, in evolution. I don't believe in intelligent design in the way that it's structured. I believe that creation is a process started by God, but not particularly controlled. I think what I like about postmodernism is that it doesn't reject all truth. It rejects uh, the idea that truth is fully knowable. And so for me, what I was able to give up was certainty, both about what I believe and, and also about what I need to believe. The ambiguity I find a little bit comforting because I have such a strong personal belief in, in Jesus Christ as God, but I'm also fully aware of how much that contrasts with the experience of, of people around me and, and people that I care about. I have a really hard time saying that my experience is right over somebody else's. I just know that, that what I believe resonates as truth on a personal level, and that's, I think, all that anybody can really expect. Um, and, and that's why I think some of the attempts to construct, you know, I think, I think what, um, what Dawkins and some of these other guys write is very interesting, but I don't know that it's all that helpful, because what they're doing is they're using the same uh, rationalism and the same language of certainty that Christian fundamentalists use to construct their arguments, uh, they're just using it for the, for the converse. And, and I think the reality is, uh, reality is uncertain. And so the core thing that I was able to give up was that certainty beyond my personal experience. And that allows me to be a whole lot more gracious, a whole lot more patient, and um, I guess a whole lot more respectful of the people around me. And that, that's a huge step, I think, giving up that certainty, because that's what's so attractive about religion. There are all these mysteries um, that are neatly solved by positing a supreme being. Absolutely. Um, one, of, one of my questions, though, you went back to the problem of evil, and you said that it really doesn't bother you. And this is some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, where the problem of evil for atheists is fatal to religion. For Christians, for people who believe, it doesn't really bother them, I think, because there's this little gray area where they know they don't know everything, and so somewhere up there it'll be explained. But my question is, I can, I can buy the theodicies um, that are used in response, of, like for free will, for example, to explain human evil, but natural evil, I think, is a little more thornier than that. Even if God doesn't control all of creation, he still is responsible, being all-powerful, in allowing this stuff to happen. Um, if he wants to stop a tsunami uh, from or, killing 60,000 people... Or at least killing the righteous of those 60,000. Or, yeah, 000. selectively killing people that he doesn't like. Um, or uh, these <laughs> these <laughs> children who are starving all the time in, in um, African countries... Uh, he can simply snap his fingers and make food grow. So it's very difficult for me to explain away natural evil. Well, I'm not so sure that, that what you're describing of what God can do or what God could do is necessarily true. 
those are very those are very rationalist ideas about God. In one of my classes, we're, we're talking about the influence of Hellenism on Christianity, and I really think it can be argued that Christianity is as much a religion of redefined Hellenism that has managed to survive for 2,000 years as it is a, a religion about Jesus Christ. Uh, I, 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 I won't dispute you on that. The um, Greeks have a huge, uh, the Dionysus cult had a yeah. huge influence on uh, Christianity as it evolved. But I mean, how do you answer? How do you answer the problem for natural evil? Is God not all powerful? <laughs> I would say God is not necessarily all powerful. At least not in the way that we, in in Western terms, define. We need things to be characterized in absolutes uh, because they make us comfortable. Tony Campolo, who is a, a progressive member of the religious left, he wrote an article not too long ago about the idea of an all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent God that is not a Jewish concept. And in the Old Testament, the Jews did not believe or not think in, in those absolutist terms. Now, there are, there are times when the phrase all-powerful probably pops up, but it didn't necessarily carry the same Greek weight that, that we're talking about right now. So I'm not necessarily sure that God could snap God's fingers and stop the tsunami, or I, I believe that God is powerful. Is God all-powerful? Man, that's a question I can't even begin to ask. Did he? Is he responsible for creating the universe? Uh, God is responsible for initiating the creation of the universe. So he created it, but he couldn't. He can't control it. Well, I, there's a lot of things that we as individuals create. We start the process. We we, we create. Uh, we split the atom, but we don't control the outcome of an atomic bomb once we've let it go. And so, I mean, I'm, this is all very theoretical, and I'm going to get myself into a hole if I talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting because I've, I've uh, never heard this angle on it before. No, it, it actually fascinates me. It has me thinking about uh, henotheistic ideas where you have God, who isn't all-powerful, and then you have Satan, which is something that Charlie and I have commented on. I mean, either God is all-powerful and he's just allowing Satan to go around doing all these things, or Satan has some power, God has some power, and they're in a battle. And, and you bring up a fascinating topic where this is concerned. If you're talking about like Zoroastrianism. They have two gods, one's evil and one's good, and they're locked in an uh -huh. internal battle, right? And that's a good explanation for natural evil because the god just says, well, you know, I'm not all yeah, powerful. It was the evil god. Who and if that. you look at the Old Testament, initially... Uh, they're henotheists. They they believe in one God, but they uh, allow for the existence of others. Only with their Babylonian captivity, I think, did they decide that he was the they're only God. And God. because we allowed for the existence of others, that's why we got captured in Babylon. That That's what led to our slavery. And now we're going to believe just in this one God and none else exists. So I think by the end of the Old Testament, he probably is all-powerful. And he's certainly the only God in existence. But uh, you're right. It's very questionable in the beginning. And, and I don't think so. I think the evidence points other, uh, elsewhere. Yeah. It kind of sounds like, I'm not saying this is what you're saying, but what it sounds like to me is um, what, like the founders of this country. They were deists. God created, but then he pulls back from creation, and he's not really that involved. Is that what you're saying, or it's not? It's not what I'm saying. I, uh, but I think that it's. Um, I think it's. It's a valid argument. You know, Marcus Borg, I think, is a deist. Marcus Borg believes in uh, a creator God who initiated the process, stepped back, and you know, now the the, the miraculous that we try to attribute to God is really a piece of. The natural order of things that we just can't explain, and and, and I'm not willing to go that far. Uh, so, like I said, I'm probably digging myself into a hole. But I don't think that we need. Well, 
I don't personally need to demand that God be all powerful. The, the question of if God is infinitely <clears throat> powerful, can God create a rock too heavy for God to lift? I, that's just that's a pointless question in, in my view because it doesn't do anything to address our relationship with God or mm -hmm. our purpose or you know what is good and what is truth. Well, then we have the whole issue of God, God's ways or higher ways, because we we can't fully comprehend God and understand God and why things happen. You know, that's the simplistic answer too. I always got. You know, God's ways are higher. We He's a mystery. You know, and so, but that doesn't. I, I get that, but that doesn't satisfy me. Do you sure. know? I, I still have the issues with um, evil in the world. I don't, I, you know, are, and the other question I've been pondering is, are people completely evil? You know, I, I think about Hitler. What he did was evil. What he did was horrible. But I saw a film about him um, in his last days and when he was underground and it, it showed a human side to him too. You know, are we are we so black, our, our personalities, are we so split? You know, you know, Che Guevara, was he totally evil? You know, was Saddam Hussein? Totally, the very bad things they do. Uh -huh. I, I, these are so. These are kinds of things I wrestle with, and, and I question, and I struggle. And if I say it too much out loud, people think I'm nuts. But it's an interesting know. question. Um, I guess I, I would say that the only people who are completely thoroughly evil are people who like psychopaths, the serial yeah. killers, they are without who that, don't feel yeah. remorse. Um, yeah. They don't have that, and you have to almost be mentally disturbed. They 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 do these things because they can't take themselves out and put each, uh, you know, themselves in other people's shoes. Yeah. Uh, I suppose you can get to that being sane by vilifying your enemies, probably, like, which was well, what Hitler, Hitler, Hitler wars, did. Yeah, Hitler right. was yeah. basically holy war. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, um, uh, I'm sure Hitler himself thought that he was doing right. And yeah. it's hard to call someone completely evil, 100% evil, if you think that you're doing good, even though the well, actions... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> God love him. He's trying the best he can, right? Uh, you know, he thinks what he did was right. Right. Just tend to disagree with him. And oh, and real quick, I wanted to say while you guys were talking about the um, the dualistic, the God versus Satan, I had the picture of um, Fred Flintstone with the good little Fred on one shoulder and the devil. Fred. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was. That's what I was picturing as you were talking about that. So. <laughs> I was thinking of the shoulder angels in, uh, uh, what is that, The Emperor's New Groove? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a funny show. <laughs> so, um, I, one of the things, Adele, that you kind of touched on that really frustrates me is Christianity, Christians need to validate what happens as a part of God's ultimate plan. And in the same way, you have these problematic scriptures where, where it's supposedly God has told the Israelites to go wipe out an entire people group including their children and animals and women. And instead of saying, this is, this is outrageous, and there's no way that that can be an absolute truth, and instead, there's got to be some different lens that we need to understand a tribal people trying to survive in a hostile environment. Instead, we say, well, God knows better than us, so that's probably okay. Yeah. And, or God we, said it, so that settles it. Right. <laughs> and and it's, it's the same kind of mentality that people try to build creationist or intelligent design arguments about. You take an existing occurrence or an existing reality and you uh, produce your theology to fit that, rather than the opposite, which is to take the evidence at hand and try to understand it at face value, which is also not entirely possible. But.
So there are parts of the Old Testament you would say are purely Bronze Age, purely tribal. What you're talking about, I think, is in Numbers 29, where he tells them to kill the Midianites. And the Israelis say, well, you know, we killed all the men, but we spared the women and children. And this pisses off God and Moses. So he tells them to kill all the male children. And all the unvirgined women. The the women who have known men uh, and save all the virgin females for themselves. I'm not even sure how you could put that into um, any sort of context to make it uh, make sense, other than tribes trying to wipe out everyone else and taking um, others in to increase their numbers. Right, right. Well, and I don't think there's anything in the Bible that you can try to look at outside of its historical cultural context. And sometimes that's very, um, it's very dangerous ground because you, you risk giving up the entire you know, underlying message of that, of that scripture. But I'm, I'm not going to try to make God validate uh, what seems to be a humanitarian outrage just so that I can keep my cohesive canon. Another passage that really um, is one of my favorites is, uh, in, I think it's in Second Kings, where uh, Elijah's walking down the street and some kids or teenagers call him Baldy, and two she-bears come out of the woods and uh, tear apart 40 of them. <laughs> That'll teach them to I love call it. names. I guess the underlying story is, you know, be respectful to God's chosen people, but for God's sakes, they're children. I think they deserved it. <laughs> I really do. It's like, you know, they were they were playing dodgeball or something, hit him with a ball. They deserve it. I sometimes wish I could call she-bears out of the woods to take care of my problems. I, I agree. I think sometimes Christians take the humanity out of the Bible, you know? They want to make it, oh, it's all this God-holy thing, you know, and this er- inerrant word of God. And then I think in churches, too, Christians check their brains at the door when they walk in the church. And they they look to their pastor like they're God and what they say goes and now I must believe it and we can't question or doubt or disagree and and I think that's very dangerous what I can't get away from uh, in spite of all that and I agree with you Adele is that uh, this this collection of documents that are thousands of years old coming from a whole range of settings and, and vantage points and an entirely different style it still moves me and it still moves people to tears and to to want to change their lives. It's it's convicting, it's powerful, and sometimes it's destructive. But there's something about it that, that is so transcendent, and you could probably say that about any great literature as well. Yeah, we had that discussion with Becky where uh, I think certainly parts of Genesis, um, parts of Ecclesiastes, uh, some of the themes in Ruth and Esther, uh, and certainly John in the New Testament are amazingly written yeah, in their, their timeless written. literature. I mean, they're on the level of uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Right. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful written stuff. Job, on the other hand, is, is terrible. Wow, he he deserved everything he got. <laughs> that, that's a horrible story. Well, you know, uh, when God needs to do some betting and get his little betting urge out, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, and when I was saying earlier how I think people forget the humanity in the Bible is, like, you know, like, you know, God told those people to go attack and kill all those people. And, and saying, well, they did it because God told them, and, and instead of being able to say, well, let's stop and question why would God have them do this? That, that that goes against kind of what God's teaching. You know, it's questioning. And I think people want this holiness thing over the Bible or something. And, and I think that, um, I think sometimes we forget the humanity. I, I guess that's what I was trying to say before. And I don't know if I make sense, but... Yeah, I'm not sure these people who take the Bible as inerrant, I'm not sure, they, either they've 
never read over it, the parts. or they've glossed over the parts. Because if you were to make a movie out of uh, the Old Testament, certainly, you wouldn't get a, a PG rating out of it. Not even close. You'd, you'd be lucky to get anything other than an NC-17. Um, some of this yeah. stuff is pretty graphic. There's a the section, I can't remember where it is, where this guy's um, sitting on the toilet, this king, and the guy sneaks his dagger in and kills the, kills the king yeah, and his yeah, bowels come that. out. His bowels come out, yeah. It describes him having emissions, you know, from the other side. It's pretty graphic. It's actually impressive. Wow. That'd be rated R. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Definitely. Um, and, you know, Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, that, that came out with an R rating. Yeah, well, I mean, yes. he kind of yeah. got hit up for how bloody he made it, but, I mean, that in and of itself is a realistic view of what the Bible is showing, so... Mm-hmm. It was a little violent, I thought. I yeah. haven't seen it, actually. <laughs> Very violent. <laughs> well, actually, I, I want to bring something back to, uh, to what you said, Peter. It was actually very fascinating. It was when I was talking to you about science and uh, with, with the emergent community... You pointed out that uh, that you think God started evolution and then just kind of guided it here and there. Um, I'm curious, does that go against the scripture, which is what made me think of it, go against the scripture where God says that he made man in his own image if he was just guiding it to it? How, how does that fit in? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. And, and I don't think I've worked all this out in my own mind enough to be able to to argue it cohesively. I guess what I would say ultimately is there there are two truths for me. One, that, that God is a real and, and present personality in my life. Not only do I have a hard time personally disputing that, but I don't really have a reason to dispute it. it, it would, for me, it would be like trying to dispute uh, the nature or the reality of a relationship with, with my wife or with somebody that I care about. You know, I, I haven't been betrayed by that person. I haven't learned some deep, dark secrets about them. But at the same time, we have observable processes. We have observable science. And I don't see a need to argue with that. So there are some, there are some things, in, and throughout Scripture, there are truths that we hold in tension. Uh, and Jesus was fantastic about creating these horrible dual paradigms where you have to die to live. Jesus comes to bring, he's the light of the world, but you have to reject your father and hate your mother. And even the, the Christological debate about how how is Jesus all God and all man, there are contradictions in the very fiber of the Christian faith that I don't believe can be worked out, nor do I believe that they were intended to be work out, worked out. They, they are intended to be whole truths set side by side that constantly tear you in more than one direction at the same time. And so for me, I won't try, I won't try to develop, uh, or maybe I won't, I won't try to argue all the ins and outs and details of how, how God initiated and is, in, is a part of creation, because I don't, I don't know. But I, but I don't think that it's necessary, because I, I believe that truths can be held side by side in, in contrast, in contradiction, and in tension. Um, and I think that that's one of the unique things about Christianity, is it regularly contradicts itself. And when we try to take those contradictions out, you take out the, the tension that I think is really inherent in Christianity. And you have a, uh, a religion like Islam, which is very black and white and very cohesive, partly because it was written by one person. Uh, Adele, do the contradictions bother you? No. Uh, you know, I'm kind of like George W. Bush. I, I, I can see <laughs> creation and um, uh, evolution compatible. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, I, don't, I used to be a creationist, you know, and a literal interpretation of the Bible, but I'm not anymore. I, I, I'm okay with the ambiguity. I really am. I be, but I believe evolution is true, and it's part of the process, and 
God used it, and I don't know how, but I uh, don't I'd say there's a difference between ambiguity on the one hand and um, flat-out contradiction on the other. I mean, in the Nicene Creed, where they say that God is 100% human and 100% divine, you know, Jesus, um, that he's fully man and fully uh, God, to me I see that as two different traditions within the Christian community, and they can't decide between them. Constantine called this together, they have to make a decision, so they'll just squish both of them. Kind of like uh, the two um, accounts of Genesis, they didn't want to throw one of them out. Uh, Noah boards the ark twice, I think you have three separate Ten Commandments. Well, see, and that in and of itself, I mean, uh, what one thing that Peter said that kind of had me raise an eyebrow is that God put these truths out there for us to contemplate but not really solve, and, and it made me sit there and think, well, why is God trying to confuse me? And, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mind being confused. It's pretty much what I do every day walking around, but... Uh, That's yeah. how he created you. He created you confused. Well, thank you very much for pointing that out. Now they know my weaknesses. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to go cry in the corner right now. I'll be back in a minute. (laughs) I think think sometimes the truth of a question, when there is a a contradiction, the truth of the question is not in the answer, but in the process of working that out. And I think one of the things that, for me, has been really illuminating and caused a lot of personal growth for me is constantly struggling and wrestling with these questions like Jacob wrestling with God the ultimate outcome is not necessarily the point the point is the process and how it transforms our understanding and the quicker you get to that point of understanding or illumination the shorter the period of growth in that question and I understand that that's not that's not an acceptable answer for some and, and that it's not satisfactory for a lot of people who need definitives. I'm not sure God actually liked wrestling with Jacob, because at the end of that, he hit him in the thigh and caused him to have a permanent limp. Do you remember that? (laughs) I think God cheated. (laughs) Well, he couldn't win man on man, so he had to hit him in the thigh. Um, Is that like that Saturday Night Live song, I'll I'll hit him in the pants? Punch punch you in the jeans. Punch you in the jeans. (laughs) So I wonder if... um, if we were to wrestle with God today, would he... This is something Adele went back to. This is kind of swiped from other cultures where the hero wrestles you know, with the deity and they, they um, leave him with some sort of permanent mark. It's what J.R. Tolkien kind of was alluding to at the end where Frodo was permanently changed by the quest. Yeah. A bunch of these characters, um, Gilgamesh permanently changed by his quest. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what's going on there. I don't think it's actually... I don't think he actually wrestled with God. What do you think? I, I think he did. In fact, I think it was <laughs> I think it was Greco-Roman wrestling like they did back All in, nude? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean... In the mud. Way to really darken that, Adele. Thank you very much. Now I'm never going to get that image out of my head. <laughs> I think... I think... Um, I think it was a story. I don't know. You know? I lost my thought. <laughs> You were probably thinking about the mud again. I think God wanted to take home one of those Grecian urns, so he cheated. <laughs> he had a little gold, he had a little gold belt. To well, there went my thought. Just thinking. <laughs> Do you guys have any questions? It's about back to kind of what Peter was saying. It's more about the it's it's a cliche saying, but it's like you know, it's more about the journey than the destination. You know, and so that how we learn and grow as human beings and. Look how many times people asked Jesus for straight-up answers, and how many times did he give them the answers that they were looking for? Never. He yeah. always he always gave them parables. He gave them stories that kept the process of questioning going. He didn't resolve 
very much in in his talks on earth and uh, and i think that what what christianity has done is it's rejected those questions because they're too difficult and we need certainty so we go to paul who's generally pretty pissed off and we we take his clarity as the words of jesus but really paul is is a secondary source jesus was constantly confusing and befuddling everybody around him even the people that walked with him daily except in john in john he's pretty forthcoming and I don't think you can find a single parable in John. In the other ones, they're pretty rife with parables. In John, he's, you know, actually in Mark, he heals that guy and he says, now go your way and don't tell anyone, right? In yeah. John, he's all about, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm God. That's me. Yeah, I'm I the way, that. the truth, and the life. Yeah. I did the miracle. I do these miracles to prove that I'm God. In other ones, he's, he's doing miracles and telling them to hush up about it. Uh, but you're right, yeah, Paul, um, especially in Galatians, he's pretty angry. <laughs> he can get... <laughs> He can get pretty irritated. There's a question even... Well, if you were knocked off your horse by God, you'd be pretty yeah, upset too. that would piss so, me off. Yeah. Come down and wrestle me. Um, if and There's a question of whether Paul's version of Christianity even really meshes with Jesus's. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, you've got at least a 20-year gap. Jesus died probably 29 or 30. Paul's writing these letters in the mid-50s. The first Gospels don't appear on the scene until probably the 70s, maybe even later. Yeah, yeah so we're looking 40 to 70 years even after right. Jesus Right, so actually died. Paul is our closest link to original Christianity, and it seems like he certainly hasn't read the Gospels, and he doesn't seem to understand a lot of the stuff that's in the Gospels. Um, so the question is, is, is he the most representative of Christianity, or is it the Gospels that were written 20 years later? I think a lot of, a lot, at least in my experience, a lot of Christians argue they, that there's a fight over who, who they follow. Is it Paul or is it Jesus? You know, well, Paul says this, but, but Jesus says this, you know, like the homosexuality. Paul, Paul spoke to it, but I think it was in regards to temple prostitution. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Right. But Christians tend to take the few times it's mentioned in Scripture and by Paul in the New Testament as the gospel, and then forget that Jesus didn't say anything. Yeah, Paul kind of sneaked in there, didn't he? Um, yeah. He wasn't really chosen uh, during Jesus' life anyway. He just sort of had a vision and uh, went to Jerusalem and talked to Peter and the, and the rest of the Twelve. Well, that's why. He was the last kid to be picked for the team. So he wasn't. That's why he was pissed. <laughs> They they pick some after Judas left. They pick somebody else, and and Paul was kind of self appointed, uh, or if you believe his writings, that I guess Jesus did appear to him, I suppose. Uh, but you don't you don't hear even Peter saying anything about homosexuality. I don't think there's a big tension in the New Testament between Paul and James. Paul thinks that uh, you know you're saved by grace alone, and and James says you're saved by works. You know, faith without works is dead. So I wonder, really, what Christianity would be like without Paul's influence on it. I don't know. Peter, either? I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. And I, it's a question that, well, maybe it's worth asking. I think that, um, ultimately, it's an issue of priority. And uh, too much of the church has, been found, has founded its theology on Paul because Paul works a lot of things out in very rational terms, in very practical, uh, pragmatic terms. And Jesus confused and confounded. And you know, as far as the issue of the, the Synoptic Gospels versus John, John was was probably written later, and really is addressing a lot more of what the nature of Jesus is in relation to God. Because a lot of those questions kept coming up: Was Jesus more man or more God? Did Jesus become God, or was Jesus initially God? And so John just asserts, uh, you know, 
Jesus is the Logos from from the beginning and tying it to a very uh, Hellenistic term there about about truth and about the word. But but John is still full of, of uh, frustrating comments about living water and you know cultural norms that are broken. Jesus goes and sits by a woman of ill repute at the well and uh, you know has seems to have no concern for questions that might arise about that conversation he just didn't do that in the first century Middle East so uh, it seems to me like Jesus was constantly subverting uh, the norms of that time but again I mean in in John the 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 well is kind of a type scene right I mean you have Jacob finding uh, his wife Rachel at the well you have Saul, I think, uh, going to the well and not finding a wife. There's a bunch of, I think in that time it was a very common type scene. Um, and I think you'd go to the well and you'd, the people hearing you would expect that you'd find your wife at the well. Uh, and, and I think that scene in John probably, well, I don't know, I'm not a scholar, uh, but it probably didn't happen. It's probably a take on this type scene where he goes and instead of finding a, a wife, he, he gives her a bunch of knowledge, right? And she goes out and tells the hillside about Jesus, and they find him, basically. So it's the sound of music just in Jesus' time. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. <laughs> hey, uh, you said hills, I saw singing, so... <laughs> I think we've lost Adele. <laughs> My God. <laughs> if, you know, I think it really comes down to, though, what what is the church chosen to focus on? The church is chosen to focus on what is... Uh, what is practically teachable and if you want to create a structure and a, a, a corporate organization um, you're going to go with Paul because Paul provides what is controllable and what is definable it's hard to talk about what what could be or what should have been because you only have what has been and you know history obviously shows this the church being created and sanctioned by Rome and becoming this you know gigantic monolith and then fragmenting but but retaining a lot of its structural uh, commonalities between between those fragments and we're all tr we the tr everyone is trying to cling to a set of what they call non-negotiables for me uh, it's almost all negotiable uh, from a personal perspective and it and it depends on um, what your experience is in and how you have approached scriptures culturally uh, what your life's background has been um, the relationships that you had and how they impact you that paint a picture of how you view um, Jesus of Nazareth. One perspective is not necessarily truer than another. Some may be more historically consistent, but... Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think it's a really good point. I never thought in terms of the clarity of Paul versus the ambiguity or... The, the necessity for interpretation, I suppose, of both the Synoptic Gospels and John. It's certainly, Paul is certainly a lot more straightforward and easier to deal with. It's easier to make a sermon out of, I guess. He's very, very clear. Well, I mean, one thing I would like to actually steer the conversation to is you guys asking us a question. Now, up, up to this point, we've pretty much uh, harangued you guys, harassed you, all that sort of uh, so I mean, uh, I, I don't feel harangued or harassed at all. <laughs> I will make sure you feel harangued or harassed by the end of this. You podcast. have not been doing your okay, job. Thank you. uh, yeah, well, obviously I have failed um, once again. I've been fired from irreligiosophy. <laughs> it was nice knowing you all. But, all right, so now but, it's your turn to harass us. What, what questions do you guys have for us? Well, I want to know 
I love Bill Maher. I watch his show when it's on. And I saw his um, religiosity movie. And he doesn't get, um, I guess he's an atheist. He doesn't get people who have faith. He's kind of hard on them. And that's one area I disagree. And I just wondered if you're kind of that way towards people like us with faith. You think we're weird or... Um, because I, I totally respect where he's coming from and where, where you all have come and, and that, and that, you know, we can agree to disagree on those things, but um, I don't think of you as um, crazy for not having faith. He looks at people, he thinks they're just, you know, it's a crutch or whatever, but what, what are, what's your take on all that? I, I'll tell you what I think. I think if, I, I don't like fundamental evangelical Christians. Um, I don't like people who believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I don't like people who want to take something like intelligent design or creationism and put it into the schools. Um, I, I actually like talking to sincere believers who actually have put some thought into their belief system and uh, and just really sincerely believe it. My wife, uh, who I've been married to for, my God, 15 years now? Much too long. Um, <laughs> is one of those. And her whole family are made up of people who believe, I think, even when it doesn't help them out. It's easy in, in Utah to be a Mormon, right? Because it, yeah. it conveys a bunch of uh, social advantages. Yeah. And, uh, so your wife's a Mormon? She is. Uh, but, it, you know, in situations where, say, we move to Arizona, for example, or um, you spend some time in, in other states where you're a distinct minority, you're still uh, LDS, you're still Mormon, uh, you still believe, even when it's a disadvantage to you, because deep down inside you, you really hold that sincere belief. And, and that, you know, um, uh, I, I kind of respect. Um, uh, my, I guess my problem would be believing in, in things for which you have no reason, the, the supernatural is one of those. Uh, miracles is another. But if you have a reason, my wife believes in things, these things because they're comforting to her. And I accept that as a, as a reason. And I think that she would be a different person if she didn't believe. Uh, now, as for myself, I mean... Uh, Leighton's just a jerk. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I just love to kick people in the shins <laughs> every time I go around. Thanks for pointing that out. No. Well, thank you. Now, now you feel harangued, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, both Charlie and I, uh, we're kind of the oddballs out in our family. I mean, both of us are atheists, and his family, really religious, and they're a couple different religions. My family... Not nearly as religious as Leighton's family. Oh, my family is devoutly religious. Leighton's father um, recently exercised a demon. That's very true, but we're not talking about that. <laughs> Shut up. That, was, imp that, that was impressive. Now, we can't talk about that, not because my father uh, did it, but because... He did it as um, uh, during their, when you grew up, too, right? Oh, yeah. He okay, would, we he'd can come talk into, about like, that. a noisy room, and he'd ex exercise demons out of it. And he would, of course, say that, you know... And I bet uh, it worked, because I'd be so stunned that I'd be stunned <laughs> into silence. That was... Well, Honestly, yes, my dad, my dad uh, feels he can cast out demons, <laughs> and of course I'm sitting back there as the third person party uh, viewing this, and those who believe actually see the differences, but as for me, I mean, when he walks in and does it to a, a loud room, I'm looking around and people are still being as loud as they feel, but he feels he did something differently. But Now hang on a second, have you, either of you ever exercised any demons out of people? No. Cast any demons out? 
I have been a part of that. I've prayed for people, but I personally have never exercised demons. Wow. Well, uh, obviously. I have a very charismatic background, and it freaks me out. That's pretty interesting. I, I think, actually, Sarah Palin, didn't she have demons? Yes, yeah, uh, Or had she had a protection. Protection against Protection against demons yeah. and witchcraft, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry uh, for interrupting. Well, thank you very much for pulling out those painful <laughs> memories. <laughs> but, uh, no, no, I mean, I look at my dad, and... I can respect that he believes so deeply. There's nothing that irritates me more than somebody who says they believe something when you can see they don't, much like Glenn Beck. I see him as being the type of believer who is a believer when it is actually nice for him to be, when it sets him apart. And uh, that type of person irritates the hell out of me, to put it, pure, or put it simply. But, I mean, my family, they're happy in their beliefs. I mean, I don't like the fact that my father hears something that just goes well with his beliefs and accepts it without doing any research, but he's happy in his religion. And so I have actually chosen with my family not to discuss religion with them. I figure if they want to, they can come on here, they can listen to me and Charlie discuss religion, but as it stands, I see them as happy I can respect their happiness, and so I take a step backwards. I'm the opposite. They've actually stopped talking with religion with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because you're I'll not talk. very personable. I'll talk as long as they want to about it. They just don't like it. Peter, did you have any questions? <clears throat> hmm, I was just thinking about, uh, in terms, I'm not sure if I have a, a question so much as, in relation to what you were just saying, I have a real problem with... Um, people of faith who hold on to their faith because it's comforting. I think that that's one of the most frustrating side effects of religion is it allows people to create sort of a safe paradigm in which to exist, not ask certain questions, not approach certain problems in the world. And I think that if, if I hear you right, your atheism allows you to address uh, issues you, that you didn't feel at liberty to address um, as religious people, whether those are humanitarian issues, issues philosophically, um, but I, I think that uh, comfortable religion of any kind is probably the most destructive kind of, of religion because it asks very little other than mental assent of the believer and, and there is no inherent life change. And we've been talking a lot about the, the philosophy of belief and how do our beliefs reconcile with science and, and with other, uh, other philosophies or worldviews, but I think that both Fredell and I um, one of the things that we're, we're each very passionate about is how does Jesus Christ incite people to change the world, to make the world a better place? Um, the, the outworking of transcendent love in the world, which sounds very uh, fuzzy and nice. And so, so all of these, all of the things that we've been talking about today, I, I think are really interesting and really important and probably the majority of what we blog about. But the reality is that all of these are just a backdrop to, at least for me, to what I think Jesus Christ's point was, and that is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And that's not some political religious community. Um, it's, it's a kingdom of justice and goodness and peace and hope and, and all the things that the world isn't right now. Um, so I, I, I guess I wanted to anchor what we've been talking about to that, that uh, the point is is love. The point is goodness, um, not having a, a cohesive 
philosophical view that that can dominate another or a right belief sure you know it's 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 how we it's not what we like you said a mental assent or or what we believe because i think they're they're with those ambiguities that we've talked about there can be different interpretations like i said someone who disagrees with me about that tries to tell me that i can't be a queer christian well I disagree with that. You, they have a right to their belief. We live in this free country. You know, maybe they're wrong and I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong, they're right. I don't know, but can't we have the ambiguity in that there maybe there's several interpretations? And what? I think that how we treat people in our disagreements is key. You know, the showing love and respect even in disagreement. That's, that's probably a good place to end. Um, okay. Although, I'd have to say that early Christianity, I think, was a lot more tolerant of divisive beliefs than modern Christianity. I think what happened was, once we got rid of the Gnostics, that Christianity kind of went through an evolutionary bottleneck, and we came, all the diverse Christianity now comes from pretty much the same core set of beliefs. I mean, you had Gnostic sects that believed in... Uh, two gods and twelve gods and three hundred and sixty-five gods, and they all were uh, labeled Christians. They they fought against each other, and eventually the Orthodox Christians won out. But they they were certainly considered Christians. Um, and I think it would be nice for me anyway to see that modern Christianity kind of uh, increase in its diversity in in what it allows to be Christians and what it doesn't. Yeah. I think I think Christianity as we see it now. I mean, I think we're good. 15 years maybe behind Europe but I think Christianity as we know it I think it's dying because it's it's becoming when you think about the Republican Party the GOP and the Christian right and and that that and that's what a lot of religion is it it can't last people are, are tiring of it and I think it's good in that form it's got to die out and something new has to emerge well I hope you're right I think um the uh, political power of the religious right and and the GOP, I hope that that's coming to an end, and I hope that we're going to follow along the same lines as Europe in that church attendance is going down, and it's it's not so much uh, the first part of your life; it's kind of in the background. That's what I'd like to see. Well, now, church. Oh, go I was ahead. Just say, I think it just should be emanate out of who we are. It shouldn't be something we do. It should be who we, how we are being. Right. When I say it in the background, I mean it's not something that, that would be something that you would thrust or force on someone else. Exactly. Sure. I agree with you. It just kind of guides your, your actions, right. say. Yeah. I mean, to be yeah. Christian is to act like Christ, in other words. Yeah. Be holistic. There is a, there's a huge... Co- I know that you guys are trying to cut this... Uh, get it to an end, but um, <laughs> there's an, a movement within even emergent Christianity that's starting to develop that is much more about the the practice of Christianity as a lifestyle, uh, which is something that I think, as you have said, is has, got, has gotten away. It's a set of, um, of beliefs and, and assertions versus a lifestyle. And Buddhism, at least in my understanding, Buddhists would often prefer to be um, thought of as practicing a lifestyle rather than a religion. It is a way of seeing the world and reality and a way of interacting with that world versus a way of belief. And and I think that there is a, a really 
uh, pragmatic way of Christianity existing in that form. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. So, I mean, uh, here at Irreligiosophy, would, we would very much like to thank you, Peter, and you, Adele, for coming on board, and we hope to actually run across you guys in the future sometime, if you'd be willing. And I, I'd gotta, I gotta say that before we started this, before we started actually dialoguing and talking to Christians, I, you know, my opinion of mainstream Christianity was heavily influenced by the religious right and fundamental evangelical Christians. It's nice to know that there are people like you guys out there who are searching and uh, trying to find answers just like we are. And who are uh, rational and, and progressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to talk to people that you can disagree with on certain things and then you find that you do have common things. And it's, it was really great to have this conversation with you guys tonight. It was, it was very refreshing for me. Well, thank you. And Thank you. for us too, it was, it was yeah. great. All right, um, what's on tap for next week? Do you know? Do you ever get a hold of your brother? No, no, I'm still working on my brother. Um, that's completely aside. But uh, on tap for next week is actually us interviewing another atheist. Matt Wakefield will be on there. Right. Um, I'll put up an announcement here in the next couple of days concerning that. So you're tired of talking to Christians? Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, they just annoy me. <laughs> I have the same problem. <laughs> Excellent. All right. All right. Well, thank you for being at Irreligiosophy.